Now at first glance, chapter 16 looks like a hodgepodge of travel plans and greetings and goodbyes, doesn't it? But in the ancient world, if you were making a case for something, you didn't just sign off and say, you're sincerely, bye. You'd revisit the stuff that you've already covered. You'd try and bring it all together and then send your goodbyes. And if you look, that is exactly what Paul does here. You see, throughout the letter, Paul has been tackling how these Corinthian Christians evaluate and treat each other. And his repeated message has been that the sacrificial love of Christ at the cross should radically change the way that we do that. And as I hope you're going to see, it's that love that ties this last chapter together, because it's that love that should fundamentally influence the way we see the poor and respond to authority and fight our battles. First point then, handling money. Now, just recently, I have been asked two different questions by two different people that I sort of logged away because the answer to both of those questions is the same. The first question was, why doesn't Westlake talk about giving to the church more? And the second question was, why don't you pass a collection plate round on Sunday mornings? And the answer to both of those questions is the same. You see, if you look at surveys as to why people don't go to church, one reason that keeps on coming up is the feeling that churches are just after your money. Plus, when it comes to church or pastoral scandals, money is always lurking somewhere in the back, isn't it? And so as elders, we just don't want to give the impression that we are just after people's money. And yet, when you read the Bible, you realise that it never shies away from the subject of money, does it? The writers see both the tremendous good that wealth can do, as well as seeing the bad. They see how money can get a grip of your heart and badly bend and distort the kind of decisions you make. But they also see how it can be put to work in ways that bring about great good. And it is that good that these Corinthians could do with their money that Paul turns to here. Verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, and the saints who Paul is talking about are their fellow Christians in Jerusalem. Okay, look how he describes them to the church at Rome. I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Okay, so some, if not many of the Christians back in Jerusalem are suffering financially. And it's not hard to guess why, is it? I mean, even just take today, financial pressure has always been a way of applying moral pressure, hasn't it? Think about today. 
I mean, if a business owner steps out of line with our current cultural, ideological orthodoxy, they've got to be prepared for at best negative press and at worst, customers withdrawing their business or other businesses cutting their ties and then potentially even being forced out of business. And Christians in Jerusalem would almost certainly have faced the same. There would have been significant social and economic pressure to deconvert and to go back to Judaism. Customers might stop buying your stuff, family might cut financial support, your network of friends, you know, those you depended on to get ahead for work might turn their backs on you. Plus, famines were a regular occurrence in the ancient world. And just like in some communities today, if you are viewed with disapproval by your community, then when it comes to getting your allocation of grain or aid, you can pretty much expect that it will all be gone by the time you get to the head of the queue. And so this collection that Paul is organising for the Christians in Jerusalem, it's not your common every Sunday kind of collection for the ministry of the local church, is it? This is special. And yet, in the way Paul talks about it, there are some universal principles for us to apply. Firstly, giving should be a priority. Look at verse 2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside. Okay, so imagine Mr. Smith the baker on the high street of Corinth. He gets to the end of the week, thinks about giving, looks in the piggy bank and goes, man, I would love to give, but there's nothing in there. I can't afford to give. And Paul says, yes, so go to the piggy bank on the first day of the week. Leave your giving to the end of the week or the end of the month or the end of the year. And you may just find that there's not much left to give. So in the order of your expenses, in the order of your priorities, Paul is saying, prioritise giving. I mean, care for the poor was a hallmark of the early church and it should be a hallmark of the 21st century church as well. Secondly, our giving should be regular. Verse 2 again. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside. You see, Paul is planning a return visit to Corinth to collect their gifts. And he doesn't want them, when he returns, or us at the end of the year, to suddenly think, ah, oh, giving, forgot about that, sorry. Instead, he says, put something aside every week. Make your giving regular. Make it disciplined. And wherever you give, you know, one easy way of doing that, of making it regular, is by setting up a regular bank transfer. Thirdly, our giving should be proportional. Verse 2 again. Each of you is to put something aside as he may prosper. Okay, so Paul is not saying that your giving should impoverish you. Rather, 
As your income goes up, so does your giving. Now that can be hard, can't it? Because as your income goes up, what you find is that there can be this pull for your standard of living to go up. And you still feel, you know, whatever you're earning, you still feel like you can't afford to give. And the reason for that, one reason for that, is because we tend to think that our worth is tied to our wealth. How good we feel about ourselves, especially in comparison to others, is often tied to our spending power, to what we have, to what we can buy, to keeping up with the Joneses. So if you wait for the day to come when you feel like you've got enough to give, that day may never come. But Paul doesn't say what the proportion we should give is, does he? Now in the Old Testament, it was a tithe, one-tenth of everything they grew or earned. But the New Testament doesn't lay down a rule, rather it gives us freedom. But if you think about it, we know so much more of God's grace and love to us than the ancient Israelites ever knew. So why would we give less than them? Fourthly, there should be a transparency about our giving. Now, by that I don't mean that everyone can see what and how much you give, but that you know how the money you give is being used. Okay, look at verse three. When I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. It's interesting, isn't it? Paul wants the Corinthians to pick the people they want to take this money to Jerusalem. He wants them to pick them. He doesn't want to give any hint that he's picking people, that this money is somehow going into his pocket. So, as you give, don't just give. Take an interest in where your money is going and how it is being used. Now, of course, there has to be trust in this, doesn't there? Paul is not suggesting a culture of suspicion. But interestingly, when he talks about those who are going to take the money, he talks about them in the plural. It won't just be one person. Why? Because Paul is not naive about the power of money. He gets the temptation of money that money brings. So take an interest in where your money is going. How are they spending it? Okay, but if the misuse of funds by others is not a reason not to give, Neither is guilt a good reason to give. You know, we need something better than cynicism or guilt to motivate us. And in Paul's follow-up letter to the Corinthians, he gives them exactly that. So fifthly, our giving should be joyfully generous. You see, in Paul's second letter, he returns to this collection and says... You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, 
so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now think for a moment, why do we sometimes struggle to give? Why do we sometimes struggle to be generous and instead hold on? Well, because as we've said, we can tend to think of our worth as tied up with our wealth. But also because money gives us power, doesn't it? It gives us a sense of security. We just feel like we can manage life better with money in the bank. So why give that away? And Paul would say, yes, but the sacrificial love of Christ for you answers both of those things. Because Jesus was and is the greatest giver of all. He had everything, but gave up everything for us. He became poor to make you, who are spiritually poor, rich. And it's in, it's in his love for you, the value that he puts on your life, that you will find real value. And it's in his love for you that you will find real security. So Paul says, be shaped by Christ's giving, be shaped by Christ's generous love for you. And then happily take your resources and use them to enrich the lives of others. Okay, but love is also going to influence how you respond to leadership whether that's leadership you exercise or leadership that you are under. Second point then, handling authority. Now, in the UK, there used to be something called the YTS, the Youth Training Scheme. And the idea was that young people who were in danger of dropping out of education and ending up on the unemployment line were given a small wage while being trained in a job and given time to go to college. But the sad thing is there was always a bit of a stigma surrounding it. It was viewed like some form of slave labor. Well, when I was a junior doctor, the night nurses on the neonatal unit ran something that they called the YTS. And it was basically their way of getting the junior doctors like me to do what they wanted. And if they liked you, they could make your job a joy and they'd eventually let you graduate from the YTS. But if they didn't like you, they could make your life miserable and there was never a way out. And Timothy, Paul's protege, he was on the YTS, okay, verses 10 to 11. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him, help him on his way in peace. Now the sad truth is that some people in some churches can make pastors and especially junior pastors lives miserable because they can never be good enough or do enough. And Paul is saying, don't have that attitude. They may be junior, they may need to mature, they may make mistakes, 
but see them, see Timothy as doing the same work for the same Lord as me. Okay, but it's not just those more junior than us, is it? Verses 15 to 18. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and labourer. Give recognition to such people. So Stephanus and crew had been Christians longer than the others in Corinth, and they clearly exercised some kind of leadership in the church there. So follow them and honour them, Paul says. Now, sadly, you can't take that for granted, can you? Because in a church, younger people can come up the next generation or new people can join a church and in their zeal, they can trample over the oldies. Don't do that, Paul says. Instead, recognise and respect them. Okay, but think, why do we often struggle with those in authority, those senior to us? What is going on in our hearts when that's the case? Well, there can be pride, can't there? Thinking, maybe even knowing that we're better than them, that we know more than them. Or there can be fear, fear of toxic leadership. Or there can be a desire to keep control because you don't want other people deciding things for you. And those, if you think about it, are the same reasons why we can be harsh or someone else can be harsh in how they exercise authority. Well, look at the kind of authority that Paul says should prompt us to lovingly submit to it. Look how he describes Stephanus and team. Verse 15. They have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. In verse 18, they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. So this is a kind of leadership that is not about the image or the platform of the leader. Rather, it's a leadership that is about devoted service and refreshing the hearts of others. And it's what Paul modelled, wasn't it? Look how he talks about Apollos. Verse 12, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Now that might seem like nothing to you, but remember how there are people back in Corinth who are dividing into factions saying, I follow Paul, and others are going, no, I follow Apollos. And yet Paul has zero hesitation in urging Apollos to go to Corinth. Why? Well, number one, because he trusts Apollos. But number two, because Paul's ministry has never been about Paul, has it? It's only ever been about Christ, and he just doesn't see Apollos as a competitor. But neither does he try and coerce or strong arm Apollos to go? Paul wants him to go. 
but he doesn't force him to go. He gives Apollos the freedom to decide for himself and Paul accepts his decision. You know, there's a type of tree whose sap is so acidic that nothing can grow in its shade. And there's a type of leader who is just like that, isn't there? No one can grow in their shade. No one can thrive in their shade. Paul was not like that. Why? Because Jesus wasn't like that. You see, when it comes to loving submission and loving leadership, Christ is our ultimate example, isn't he? The Father sends him on a rescue mission that will cost him his life, and he goes. He perfectly submitted to the Father's authority. But Jesus was also the ultimate servant leader who came not to be served, but to serve, who led and who leads in ways that refresh. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And it's as you see him leading by serving, laying his life down for you, that you will find the trust and the humility to follow good or godly leadership and to exercise leadership in ways that allow others to thrive and grow up around you. But that doesn't mean that everyone will agree with you, leader or not. Third point, handling threats. Verses eight and nine. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So Paul knows that the Lord has work for him to do in Ephesus, and yet he's facing all of this opposition. There are all these missiles coming in. And the temptation when that happens is to think, Man, life is too short for this. I've had enough of this. Time to move on. Time to quit Ephesus. Paul's response is different, isn't it? For him, facing opposition is not a reason to quit, but to stay. And not just for Paul. Look at verses 13 and 14. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, why would your average Christian or church in Corinth or Lausanne need to be watchful, to be on guard? I mean, that sounds like the kind of thing you'd say to a soldier, doesn't it? Exactly. It's the kind of thing you would say to someone who faces an enemy, someone facing attack by stealth. Okay, but for a church or for us as individual Christians, what is that going to look like? Well, look what Paul says next. Stand firm in the faith. So this is about the gospel. This is about the truth, about standing your ground and guarding against anything that compromises 
or waters down or threatens or distracts us from the gospel. And there are any number of things that can do that, aren't there? Then and now. That can come along and say, you shouldn't believe that anymore. That is so regressive. Or this is what you should give your time and your efforts and your thinking to. And Paul is saying, no, those attacks by stealth will come. So stand your ground on the gospel. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Now, why do we sometimes struggle to do that? Why do we sometimes struggle either to stand by our principles and on the truth and be a person of integrity, even if it costs us, or be led off onto standing on some other ground than the gospel and thinking, okay, no, this is what's most important. Well, one reason is that we fear men. The opinion of others can matter too much to us. And so we back down or we follow them rather than Christ. So look what Paul says next. Act like men. And the verb Paul uses is the verb used by the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the command to soldiers like Joshua on the eve of battle. Joshua 1 verse 9. Be strong and courageous. Act like men. For the Lord your God is with you. Joshua, you face an enemy. There is going to be a battle. Not everyone is going to like you. So be bold, be strong, act like men because God is with you. Listen, you and I can be courageous for truth and act like men, be bold and courageous, even if naturally we feel timid and mouse-like, not because naturally we are bold and courageous, but because Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. Because his opinion of you ultimately counts more than anyone else's. Ultimately, his opinion of you is the only one that really matters. And when you know that, it gives you great confidence, doesn't it? It gives you a boldness. As Paul says in Romans 8 verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? But there is a danger with fighting for truth, isn't there? And that is that you can become a street fighter. You can become a culture warrior and you can begin to see everyone as an enemy, even your brothers and sisters. And you forget that they are your brothers and sisters and agree with you on the truth of the gospel. But because they disagree with you on some of these secondary issues, you can begin to lob grenades at them. Which is why Paul adds, let all that you do, even the fights you pick, let all that you do be done in love. You see, one of the reasons why we can become harsh in the way that we defend the truth is the same reason why we sometimes cave in on the truth. It's the fear of man. Because others' opinions matter too much to us. We give them way too much credit and we forget that God is God and Christ has triumphed. You see, only the gospel 
can give you the humble confidence you need on the battlefield of truth. Because only the gospel tells you that you are loved, win or lose the argument. Only Christ can make you tough and tender. Be your toughness and you will spend your days fighting. Be all tenderness and love and truth will just become sentimental goo. But in Jesus, we see ultimate toughness and ultimate tenderness because he was the one who confronted religious hypocrisy while extending mercy to prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners because he was the one who violently cleansed the temple and then welcomed children to him. Because he's the one who sent away the accusers of the woman caught in adultery, leaving them in no doubt that they too stood accused, and then turned to her and said, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Because he's the one who at the cross bore all the physical and spiritual horror of our sin upon himself and yet prayed, Father, forgive. He is perfect toughness and perfect tenderness. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Because when you know that Jesus gave up everything for you, and that he's your king, tough and tender, you'll grow more like him and you will handle your wealth and authority and the threats that you face the way he did, with love.